Well, hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to this episode of the Thursday Morning Report. This was a project I did a few years back in partnership with Mendocino County Public Broadcasting, where I volunteered as an engineer, host, and producer. Enjoy this one-hour interview program that went out live over the radio on KZYX. If you like what you are hearing, you can check out my current podcast, The Shift with Doug McKenty, on your favorite podcast hosting site, or find out more on Facebook and YouTube at The Shift with Doug McKenty. I'm also on Twitter at McKenty. If you want to support the program, look up The Shift on Patreon, or find it on the web at www.theshiftnow.com and click on subscribe. Subscribers receive access to full-length feature episodes of The Shift, as well as the membership forum, where members can engage in discussions and participate in the evolution of the show. Stay tuned for this episode of the Thursday Morning Report from KZYX Radio in Mendocino County, California. Good morning, everyone. Thank you for listening to the California Report. You've been listening right here on KZYX 90.7 FM Philo, KZYZ 91.5 FM Willits, and Ukiah 88.1 FM Fort Bragg. This is Mendocino County Public Broadcasting, listener-supported community radio. We're streaming on the web at kzyx.org. The time is now 9.01. Stay tuned in just a few moments for the Thursday Morning Report. My name is Doug McKenty. I'll be your host for the next hour. I'm speaking this morning with uh, Mary Margill of the Community Environmental League Defense Legal Defense Fund, as well as Jamie Lee uh, from our local Transition Towns movement. We're going to be talking about uh, nature's rights uh, and uh, different possibilities for uh, fighting uh, corporate personhood and its influence here in Mendocino County. So stay tuned for that. I'd like to take a moment to say that on November 9th at approximately 11 a.m. local time, the Federal Emergency Management Agency will conduct a nationwide test of the emergency alert system. It will be heard on the radio and seen on local cable and satellite TV. As federal, state, tribal, territorial, and local governments prepare for and test their capabilities, this event serves as a reminder that everyone should establish an emergency preparedness kit, an emergency plan for themselves, their families, communities, and businesses. More information at FEMA.gov. Stay tuned for the Thursday Morning Report right after this music break. your show now so what's it gonna be cause people will tune in how many train wrecks do we need to see before we lose touch and we thought this was low well it's bad getting worse oh, where'd all the good people go I've been changing channels I don't see them on the TV show where all the good people go? We got heaps and heaps of what we saw. They got this and that with a rattle attack test and want to. Now what you gonna do? Bad news, best news, got too much to lose. Give me some truth now, whose side are we on? Whatever you say. Turn on the boob tube, I'm in the mood to obey, so lead me astray. And by the way now, where'd all the good people go? I've been changing channels, I don't see them on the TV show. Where'd all the good people go? We got heaps and heaps of what we saw. All I really want to know is where'd all the good people go? 
part of that saying no means that they also want to begin to say yes to good things, and that good thing includes the community having that self-sovereignty and the ability and empowerment to protect nature where they live, and that's this concept of rights of nature that they're writing into these local laws that we're helping them to develop, such that the ecosystems within the communities themselves have legally enforceable rights to exist, to thrive, to regenerate, to evolve, and the people in the community, by virtue of living there, have the legal authority to defend the rights of ecosystems. And this is a new paradigm that communities are pioneering across the country and in other countries with a full understanding that our structures of environmental law today have led us down a very bad path in terms of how we protect nature and that we need to be doing something very, very different if we're going to have any chance at all of achieving sustainability. Yeah, this is really interesting. I, I think you, know, you hit the nail on the head talking about local sovereignty. Uh, let's spend a minute just kind of focusing in on the problem um, because what we've seen, I think, over the last 50 or 100 years is this notion of corporate personhood. Uh, really giving corporations the rights that individuals have, but even more uh, in terms of the fact that they can come into our communities, that we don't have local sovereignty to determine uh, what corporations come in because they've already gotten permission on the state and the federal level. Can you talk for just a second about how the corporate personhood is used uh, as a tool uh, against local communities so that they can come in and do this? Absolutely. I think you're quite right. Corporations have gained, it's not even corporate personhood rights, as much as this whole basket of constitutional protections that they use against us, and by us I mean our communities. So, you know, communities that are facing natural gas drilling and fracking um, across the country find that not only is their state and federal government not there to help them protect their drinking water from fracking, but in fact are issuing permits to corporations to come in and frack. So, our state and federal government are issuing permits, legal authorities to corporations to conduct environmental harm in our very communities. And they're able to do that because corporations have this whole big bundle of corporate constitutional rights that they've accrued since 1819, going all the way back almost wow. 200 years. And those rights allow corporations to not only write their legislation that state and federal governments implement and regulate their own industry by writing their own regulations, but they're also able to wield it against our communities by even just the threat of a lawsuit against a community is enough for a community to kind of turn tail because it has such a powerful chilling effect when a big corporation says, we're going to sue your community. You can only imagine the response a community has. It's so overwhelming when that sort of thing is threatened. And so corporations don't even have to file a lawsuit. They can just threaten to do it, and it's enough to shut down a community's fight against them coming in and setting up a factory farm or conducting drilling. Mm -hmm. Jamie, you have something to add? Hey, Mari, can you talk as to how when we try and fight against the, the corporate and regulatory systems, how the legal system focuses on a single entity issues and that we cannot actually go against the corporations because the state attorney general and the court and the and the government does not allow us to actually go against the government or, or go against the corporations and they focus us on single issues only yeah it, it, Jamie's absolutely right I mean it's sort of I think we have a, a sort of cynical notion of corporations, which I, I'm certain I share. But, you know, we have this idea that, well, the problem is corporate power or corporate personhood. But it's so it's amazing when a community comes to this acknowledgement that they're facing some sort of threat, and it can come from coal mining, like the West Virginia communities that have seen mountaintop removal mining in, you know, the Northeast and, and many, many parts of the country. It's drilling and fracking, and, and, uh, and it can be any sort of host of those sorts of um, threats to our natural environment within our communities. And what communities run into first is actually not bad corporations. It's, in fact, their state and federal government, which is putting in place legislative structures that literally allow corporations to conduct these activities. So it's not corporations that are behaving illegally or corrupt or badly. It's actually what they're able to get the state and federal government to implement such that they're behaving legally when they come in and blow the top off the mountain when we live in West Virginia. And what happens is communities get stuck in what we call these quote-unquote site fights. So they're trying to stop mountaintop removal mining, for example, or they're trying to stop factory farming, for example. But as Jamie said, it's a much more systemic problem that the community faces because it's not just the fact that they're facing a factory farm because tomorrow they could be facing a Walmart or they could be facing coal mining or drilling. The problem is, is that there's a structure of law in place at our state and federal level which empowers corporations over communities such that communities don't have the legal authority to decide what happens within their own borders. 
Yeah, I mean, it's it's a definitely. I think what we're looking at is a lot is the collusion of government and corporations against local communities here, so that we don't, you know, we don't have a leg to stand on. Um, can you talk a little bit about the the regulatory environment then, and the way that oftentimes corporations use regulations to sort of water down what's actually going on? And since they are colluding with the government, it, it just adds another layer, uh, not getting at the root of the issue. Absolutely, I think regulations have this. You know, they have this sort of effect on us that we think if something is being regulated, you know, if mining is being regulated, then it must be okay. If our state environmental and our federal environmental protection agency are issuing regulations and implementing and enforcing them, then everything is going to be okay. But it's those very regulations that the industry itself writes to regulate its own industry, like mountaintop removal mining, which I think everybody around the world knows about at this point. We have environmental laws and regulations in place that allow that to take place. So our environmental regulations are actually about authorizing harm authorizing corporations to emit um, into our air, our water, our soils, to blow the tops off mountains, to drill and frack our communities. And so the regulations have this sort of gloss to them that they're actually to protect us, but when in fact they're actually about authorizing this kind of harm to take place and, and putting a certain, I don't even know how to describe it, but a gloss on it such that we think that everything's going to be okay. But with communities that come up against these threats, more and more of them are coming and calling us and coming to our doorstep and saying, wow. The structure of law doesn't work the way that we thought it did. We thought it was there to protect us. So when we call up our state you know, environmental agency, like communities in New Hampshire, where the Department of Environmental Services regulates water, and, they find, and a community finds out that Nestle is going to come in and take out 300,000, 400,000 gallons of water a day from their local aquifer, and they call up their state environmental agency and say, listen, we need your help to protect our water. Instead, what they find out is that their state environmental agency is, instead of not protecting helping them to protect their waters, instead issuing permits to corporations to take it under environmental regulations. And so the structure of law is really upside down from what communities think it really is until they come up against it. And they find out that not only is it corporations that are able to override their determination in their own community, it's actually the state and federal government hand-in-hand hand with the corporations that are telling us that our decision-making is preempted at the local level. And I think it's more and more communities, and I think the conversation in Mendocino is so important because it's more and more communities are coming to the conclusion that they cannot protect their water, they cannot protect their air, their soils, they cannot protect the natural environment so long as they're forced to live under this structure of law, which is why cities like Pittsburgh and in other places are beginning to put in place new structures to replace the existing structure so that they can make those decisions. All right, very good. Jamie? And, and Mari, can you talk about how the corporate personhood can actually go after individuals and communities that want to challenge uh, basically, you know, the government allocates how much death and destruction the corporations can do. And if you try and, and get to the corporations, because they've wrapped themselves around the First Amendment, the Fourteenth Amendment, the Fifth Amendment, Fourth Amendment, that they can actually challenge individuals with all their corporate power. And so it really keeps the individuals and the communities from fighting back in, in, a, in a fair fight against this. It, it's, un, it's so unfortunate, but it's so true that we've seen Active, people getting engaged in their community, they're becoming active often for the very first time because some sort of threat is coming in, let's say it's a factory farm, and they recognize how damaging that will be to the smaller farmer, the family farmer, to the natural environment, to the treatment of animals, the local economy, and so on. And so people get active in their community, and don't we want people to be active and engaged in, what, you know, in our civic debate and so on? And what they often experience, and it happens so often, is that not only can the community be threatened by a corporation, like if a community gets active, the community like municipal government can be threatened with a lawsuit. But even worse than that is that corporations can and have and continue to do so through community grassroots groups and individuals within those groups who've been trying to fight a corporation for coming in and, and drilling or fracking or mining. So people, when they get active and they get engaged in what's going on in their community, actually are facing corporate lawsuits when they try to actually do something good, like protect their natural environment or the public health in their community. Facing lawsuits, the chilling effect of that, it's so scary, and it's so damaging to public participation. And we really have to question, why do corporations get to even engage in our civic debate like this when it's really supposed to be of and by the people? What has happened to that when corporations are able to stifle that by filing or even threatening lawsuits against individuals? 
All right, let me take a moment uh, for a station break. It's 9.20. You're listening to the Thursday Morning Report right here on KZYX. Uh, I'm your host. My name is Doug McKenty. This morning I'm speaking with Mari Margill of the Community Environmental Legal Defense Fund as well as Jamie Lee of our local Transition Towns movement. Uh, we're talking about corporate personhood and uh, the rights of nature. So let's get into this whole uh, nature's rights issue. I mean, there's a part of me that is wondering... Uh, well, I mean, what happened to the old system? I mean, theoretically, we're all supposed to have uh, property rights. Uh, so it seems like people should be able to sue these corporations when they affect uh, at least their own property. Like, I mean, for example, we've seen the fracking issue where people can light their house water on fire. Uh, how come individuals can't just put an end to this by, by suing these corporations? Uh, you know, obviously, they're damaging uh, people's private property. Is that for me? Yeah, sure, Mari. Go, go ahead. <laughs> okay. Yeah, you know, that's a question we get all the time. Mm -hmm. Because, like, when a factory farm moves in next door, your property value can be, you know, could cut in half exactly. tomorrow. And the and it's a very logical question. Well, if they're, if they're harming my property value, how come I can't sue them for them taking, essentially, my property value away? And here's the answer, which is that corporations have been defined by the courts as private entities. And private entities as opposed to public entities. And our Bill of Rights protections, like our Fifth Amendment protection against the government taking our property, like we have to be justly compensated if the government wants to put like a freeway through our house, you know, this idea of eminent domain, we have to be compensated for right. that loss in our property, our property value. Corporations are not held to a similar uh, standard because they're considered private as opposed to public entities, and our Bill of Rights protections only apply to public, that is government entities. We're only protected against government taking over property, not corporations. Wow. So we don't have a constitutional claim against that you know, mining corporation that undermines our own property value when they set up shop next door. And it's amazing what happens when you have this kind of conversation in a community when they find out that corporations can violate your Bill of Rights protections, your constitutional protections, your free speech protections at will, because they don't have to recognize them. They are not responsible for implementing or enforcing them. We can only uh, be protected against them from government infringement. And so, no, we don't have a constitutional claim against a drilling corporation um, when they frack under our houses because it's just the law isn't structured that way. It, it empowers corporations mightily over individuals and communities. And, and our legal systems back the contracts and commerce and property over the rights of individuals and nature. And so we keep having uh, contracts being upheld, but the rights of the people and the rights of nature getting trampled upon. And Mari, could you talk about your work down in Ecuador that in 2008, how you helped them uh, write in the first ever rights of nature into their mm -hmm. constitution? I think that's just huge. Absolutely. I, I mean, in 2007, 2008, Ecuador entered a, a, a process of writing a new constitution and it was really a remarkable process that they undertook. And, you know, you wonder why we have sat under our Constitution for, you know, centuries without touching it. And in Ecuador, we were invited in because folks there had heard about the kind of work we were doing in the United States, helping communities pioneer a new structure of environmental protection, moving from this structure where we treat nature as property under our structure of law, and our environmental regulations regulate how we can exploit that property, and communities like Pittsburgh are now moving in the direction of moving from a property-based structure of law for environmental protection to a rights-based one, such that we recognize the rights of ecosystems to live and, and the people within a community to defend those rights of those ecosystems. This work gained the attention of folks in Ecuador, and as they were writing a new constitution, Ecuador is is tremendously amazing country in terms of its ecosystems, um, both Andean and Amazonian, the Galapagos, and so on, and they've seen such incredible exploitation by multinational corporations like Texaco or Chevron. I think everybody knows about that case with the dumping of tons and tons of oil-related stuff into the Amazon. That's a case been going on for two decades now. And people in Ecuador said, we need to be doing something fundamentally different if we're going to protect this place that we call home. And so we were asked by them to draft provisions for their constitution, which we did based on the work that we've been doing in the United States. They took that and they actually expanded it beyond even where we were going, which was remarkable. And by a public referendum, overwhelming vote of the people of Ecuador in September of 2008, they adopted into their constitution the very first time ever across the world, they constitutionalized rights of ecosystems within Ecuador. And what that has meant is we've just had the very first case come down in which the Vilcabamba River 
in southern Ecuador was a plaintiff in a case defending itself in court with some folks standing, in essence, in the shoes of the river itself to bring a case saying that a highway expansion project by the government there was infringing on the rights of the river to exist and to thrive and to survive. And the provincial court of Loja in Ecuador agreed, and they upheld the rights of the river against this construction project stopping the construction project. And it's the first time we've seen those constitutional provisions in Ecuador begin to be used, but it's so exciting to see a new paradigm coming into place and implemented such that the river itself is defending itself in court. Yeah, I mean, that's fascinating. We, th we think about uh, the exploitation that corporations do to the environment here in the United States, but uh, definitely throughout the world, um, they just uh, rape and pillage, it seems, uh, the indigenous peoples of, of uh, South America and Africa um, and the Middle East, I mean, you know, uh, where they have even less uh, of, a, of a governmental structure, uh, they just go in and destroy it. So it seems like uh, this model from Ecuador uh, might be a possible solution. Uh, I have one question about it. I mean, how does it work? Obviously, a human being has to be there uh, representing, uh, say, the river in Ecuador. Uh, so, I mean, I guess I, it just seems like how do you know that the river's rights are being protected when uh, there must be a human being that's interpreting that in some way? Yeah, certainly. And it's much like, you know, you know like with children, for example, or the infirm or the mentally ill um, here in our country, they need a guardian to be able to represent them legally mm -hmm. in court, much like that's very similar to what's happening here. Um, so, in essence, it's a guardian that is taking the river um, as a plaintiff into court to represent the interests of the river. And I think that's how the structure is going to be built um, as a new precedent comes in Ecuador and other countries that begin to adopt this. Um, with an understanding, you know, I think there's some very, very clear cases when the rights of ecosystems are being infringed. Some of them, like mountaintop removal mining in West Virginia, I think is a very clear case when an ecosystem is being just fundamentally destroyed. But I think that, you know, the standard will evolve, and that will evolve legally. But I think that what we're talking about here in very general terms is that, you know, people say this will stop development, this will stop growth. Really what this is about is stopping development or stopping growth that's going to infringe on the ability of ecosystems to continue to survive and continue to exist the way that they need to, to be natural. So we want to make sure that human development, human growth, human development, whatever that is, looks mm -hmm. like, that it doesn't infringe on the ability of ecosystems and natural communities to themselves continue to exist in a natural state such that we're able to continue to have them because we depend on them for our own livelihood and our own survival. Um, and so far, what we've seen under 40-plus years of major environmental laws in our country and around the world, that our environmental uh, protections, our criteria that we measure environmental health by have deteriorated significantly in the last several decades. And that has to turn around. Um, or we're going to see global warming far more accelerated. We're going to see deforestation. We're going to see the acidification of our oceans, the disappearance of our fisheries and other species. You know, there's so many indicators that we're not doing the right thing by right. the environment, which is not only harming the environment, but harming us. Well, I mean, that's the interesting point here, I think, is that... Um, it's developing a system whereby human development occurs alongside of uh, natural uh, evolution. And so we can develop a system here where the two don't, don't have to uh, collide with each other, but they can work together. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I, I think it's very much about that and creating a structures of law in our own behavior and practices such that we're fundamentally changing our own relationship with nature such that both are able to survive in a healthy way. Mm -hmm. and, and bringing it home to local issues and state issues, um, you know, we're, we're running out of resources and we're being attacked from so many different fronts. But um, like in Willits at Uprising Farms, uh, they've got a cease and desist order from the FDA and USDA because they're simply selling raw goat milk uh, at, the, at the farmer's markets. Um, on the coast, uh, seaweed with Mendocino, um, Mendocino seaweed with the military actions on the coast, they're, they're being limited on how much they can harvest on the seaweed. And, you know, on the California coast, we don't have uh, salmon and cod and halibut and snapper and now the ab abalone is being threatened and who is protecting the rights of the fish to exist and who is protecting the, the future generation of our children to, to have the, the rights to, to eat fish and to have the same kind of ecosystems. I mean, we're, we're down to 2% of the forest left in the United States. And so if we don't start being much more selfless and 
less selfish, we're going to see the entire systems going away and wonder what happened. And um, I think, Mari, if you could talk about what's going on in Mount Shasta and how, how the beginnings in California to, to fight back is happening with the cloud seeding and the uh, Nestle's companies uh, taking of the, um, the water out of the McLeod River and what, a hundred year lease to take 200 million gallons of water and export it to bottled water out of the McLeod River in a private deal? Hmm. Yeah, the Mount Shasta watershed is, you know, is being targeted by bottled water corporations and for cloud seeding. Um, it's really, it's an extraordinary watershed. And in a place like California, especially, that experiences so many problems with drought and just water shortages, it's just, it's remarkable that we're, you know, fighting, and this community is fighting corporations coming in to bottle and sell their water commercially somewhere else. You know, it, what, this, what the Mount Shasta community folks have found, they, they watch the, the folks in neighboring McLeod try to fight Nestle for many years, and those folks put up a tremendous fight to try to keep Nestle out from taking hundreds of thousands of gallons of water every day. And ultimately, you know, there, I think there's some misunderstanding about what happened there, but the activism there was so, you know, was really critical to putting pressure on the company, and ultimately the company said no to the community as opposed to the community having the legal authority to say no to Nestle. And Nestle decided to set up, I think they moved to the Sacramento area, if I'm not mistaken. And I think what the people there in the Mount Shasta um, region have said is, we can't have a corporation privatizing our water, and we can't have a corporation sending up silver iodide and other chemicals into the clouds to make it rain and fooling around with our weather patterns. That's not the way that we need to be going. We need to be going in a sustainable path, and that means putting in place our own right to determine what happens here and our right to say no to those kinds of very environmentally impacting activities because if we allow those things to take place, how in the world are we ever going to achieve sustainability? And I think that's the path that these folks are on, which I think is so critically important. And if they are able to get past the opposition um, and the pressure that are facing from, like, their county elections office um, and from their own municipality who are threatened by people actually making decisions for themselves in their community, I think they're going to be making a, a great deal of progress for California and pioneering work there. I did an interview about the cloud seeding um, a few years back, and uh, one of the interesting tidbits was that the only uh, the way that the California legislature had dealt with it, uh, the only law that they had passed to deal with the cloud seeding issue was to absolve the corporations of all liability for what they're doing. And I thought, well, I mean, this is just another example of how the corporations have taken over the system. I mean, isn't it the function of government to protect us and, and to protect our property rights? But here uh, is another case where you know, they say, oh, actually, no, we're going to let the corporations do this, and there's nothing that you can do about it. So it's nice to see the people of Mount Shasta are, are uh, able to stand up for it. And how, how did they organize, and what did, how did they get started to organize to start writing into, to put on the ballot the rights to self-determine and ban corporate personhood and rights of nature in Mount Shasta? Yeah, I think, I think one of the things that happened in Mount Shasta, which is really important, is actually being able to see very clearly how the structure of law works against communities. And, and I think, un unfortunately, um, you know, for the folks in McLeod, they had this long fight against Nestle, but the folks in Manchester were able to just observe it, um, much like other communities observe how things work. And then they say to themselves, boy, we don't want to have to face that kind of fight. What can we begin to do differently? We began talking with the folks in Mount Shasta. We've held um, different kinds of trainings with them, including democracy school, and um, began to talk with them about what are other communities around the country doing when they come up against this sort of threat to their water, to their air, whatever it might be. And that proceeded in about a year-long process um, in which we provided them some technical assistance to help them to develop a local citizens' initiative, which whereby they went around the community of Mount Shasta and gathered signatures of registered voters, you know, you have to meet a certain threshold to qualify something for the ballot. And unfortunately, what happened in Mount Shasta, which we've seen now repeated in other communities around the country, is that they successfully qualified their initiative for the ballot, and then their own county elections, the folks that are there to protect their interests as citizens to put something on the ballot, the county elections actually took it off the ballot, forcing the Mount Shasta Community Rights Project to sue, to restore it. And so the county elections said there were procedural problems, we assisted the local grassroots group to sue to restore it to the ballot, and ultimately the court agreed that the county elections acted improperly, but they didn't have the legal authority to force them to put it back on the ballot. A long story short to say that the folks in Mount Shasta, I think, are still very much in the process of saying, we need to do something here to protect our water, protect nature, and that to us means 
recognizing our own right to self-determination, recognizing the rights of our water ecosystems here in Mount Shasta, making sure that corporate rights cannot override community rights, and that has to happen through a citizen's initiative process. All right, let me take a moment now to say it's 9.35. You're listening to the Thursday Morning Report here on KZYX. Uh, this morning I'm speaking with Mari Margill of the Community Environmental Legal Defense Fund as well as Jamie Lee uh, of our local Transition Town Movement. We're talking about uh, corporate personhood and nature's rights. Uh, Mari, could you speak for a second? You mentioned the democracy schools. I know uh, CELDF has been putting these on now for a little while. Can you tell us about what they're about? Yeah, the democracy schools, and Jamie, I know that you've been through one, so you can talk about your own experience, but we've held about 200 or so around the country um, for the past seven or eight years. There are, in essence, these weekend workshops or trainings in which communities host them because communities facing threats are often baffled by how the structure of law works, so it doesn't seem to work the way that they think it should um, on their behalf as opposed to a corporation's behalf. In the schools, what we do is we really examine this whole idea um, of how corporations have these powers to override communities. We examine the history of how it is that our communities seem to be um, subordinate to our state and federal government such that we don't have the legal authority to say th no to things like the privatization of our own water. Um, and we examine what other communities and what past people's movements, like the abolitionists and the suffragists, what did they do when they came up against illegitimate and unjust structures of law? And what are communities now in different parts of the country doing as they come up against these structures of law that don't allow the community to say no to things and, even, in fact, don't even allow them to say yes to good things like sustainable farming? And so we work with communities in these day-and-a-half-long trainings which are often the launching pad for new community campaigns to help them to strategize about what can we do here to protect ourselves, establish our own sovereignty. Um, you know, we've held them all over the country, including a number of them in California. Um, and I, I think there might actually be another one scheduled for California in the not-too-distant future. And there's a whole schedule of them up online, and the address for that is CELDF. Org, and there's a Democracy School button right there on the home page so you can take a look at what the schools are about, watch a video, and also find out what the schedule is for schools that might be in your area. Yeah, and one of the important takeaways I took from this weekend workshop on Democracy Schools was, one, how little I knew about how we got our Constitution, how we got our, our, our Declaration of Independence, but also when we tried to get into the issues of corporate personhood and, and challenge the rights of corporations to have the same rights as, as living people. Um, we found that uh, Thomas talked about how he tried to argue in court, and the, and, the, and the judge says, you can't talk about that. That's called settled law. And settled law means we can't even go begin to challenge that because we've already determined that this is okay, when in fact there was a bunch of shenanigans just to get the corporate personhood in the, mm -hmm. in the, in the rulings to, to have the corporations give the power they have. So we can't even go through the current system to challenge what it is that, that, that the corporations have the power to do. Yeah, I mean, that's amazing. They, they basically uh, have spent a lot of money to push this corporate personhood idea through, and even when they fail and they failed, once that one precedent gets set, once they succeed one time, uh, then you can't go back and make a change. They're going to stick to it. And, and now we have the Supreme Court case last in February 2010 of the Citizens United versus the Federal Election Commis Commission, which overturned uh, years of judicial precedents with its ruling that allowed corporations immunity to from limitations on campaign spending. And so the gloves are off is how much they can go into their whole treasuries to, to uh, seat any politician they want now. So we, we don't have a chance. Mm-hmm. Well, Mari, can we can we go back to discussing the difference between the property-based law and the and the rights-based law? I I had an interesting experience as I was doing research because I've always thought, well, why don't we go back to just you know really protecting individual property rights? I mean, the kind of the the ideal system of, of you know from John Locke or you know the initial the initial backers of this idea that government is there to protect private property, and if we could do that. Uh, then we really, you know, we could have a tool to clean up the environment and make things better. But then, uh, as I as I was doing research, uh, there was just an interesting analogy that you used uh, about how well we used to think of people as property too. Uh, you know, like if we if we if we think of everything as property, uh, then it just becomes sort of commodified. But when you think of everything from this nature's rights point of view, uh, then you can you can really liberate yourself. Um, 
So can you just kind of describe the two difference, the differences there between the two systems? Yes. The idea of this individual property rights, which has is, is been so core to our, to our government, to our law, to our nation, really. And the difficulty, of course, becomes that as an individual property owner, you have the legal authority as a property owner to destroy that property, in essence, to exploit it however you wish. Um, with no, you know, without concern for the ecosystems and the species that depend on it for survival. And drawing that analogy, I think, is very important with, like, the abolitionists who came up against the structure of law in which people, African Americans, were treated as property and the slave owner had the legal authority to exploit their slave however they wish because it was their property. And, in fact, murder of a slave was not considered to be murder. It was considered a property crime. And if someone killed a slave, then they had to pay the slave owner damages for damage to their property. I mean, as sick as that sounds, right. that's how the structure of law worked. Very similarly today um, is how we treat nature. Nature's similarly treated as property, did not have recognized rights under the law, like slaves did not have recognized rights, weren't seen by the courts as having protections. And we're in a similar situation where we hold individual property rights up as you know, absolutely critical to our nation, but what that means is that we're each able to destroy the environment on our own property. And what communities have come to this place where they said, boy, you know, we've been living under the structure for quite a long time. We're seeing the severe environmental consequences from it. We need to change what that looks like. So that doesn't mean eliminating property rights. What it does is it means that me as a property owner, I am not allowed to destroy the ecosystems and the natural communities and the habitat that they depend on for their survival on my property. I can do things on my property. I'm not restricted from doing things on my property. What I'm restricted from doing is conducting activities that will interfere with the ability of ecosystems and natural communities to survive and evolve and regenerate and so on. And so what it means is restructuring how we perceive our own property rights and what our understanding is of what our relationship is with nature and our own dependence on nature and nature's dependence now on us, and so that we reassemble or reestablish what that relationship looked like, and I think both culturally as well as in our structures of law, so that nature is able to survive and thrive in a way that it's not being allowed to now. Mm -hmm. and, and, and this goes back to the, the original writing of the Constitution, right, Mari, with, you know, when, when they had the problem with the slaves and they did determined the slaves were three-fifths of a person, and the Federalists wanted to have power over all the states where in the, in the Continental Congress before that, the states had relationship, friendly relationships, I think is the terminology they used, but they had a big problem, like with Jefferson in Virginia, where there's 300,000 people, half of them were slaves working on the cotton and tobacco fields, and so if they fled to another state and it was friendly, they wouldn't be able to have their, their non-cost workforce, and so the Constitution has been a flawed document from the very beginning, right? Yeah, I think that's true. I think there's a lot of mythology that we try to do a little bit of myth-busting in democracy yeah. school about what the Constitution is and what were the interests of those who wrote it. Um, and remembering, you're absolutely right, I mean, there's a lot of compromise that shows up um, in the Constitution itself with respect to slaves. We don't see the word slave in the Constitution itself, but they are, um, it's codified. Slavery is codified itself in the Constitution, and the document itself had really no element of democracy in it, such that slaves aren't recognized as having rights, neither are women, neither are children, or, you know, people of other denominations or of ethnicities. Um, and so the Constitution itself really contains very little idea of democracy, but it has been mythologized as this great bastion of democracy. And with respect to slavery, I mean, yes, people were considered property under the Constitution, and that meant that, for example, States like Virginia, where half the population was slaves at the time, they were able to actually call upon our own federal army to come in and suppress slave revolts. That's how the Constitution was written. That was the interest of the drafters, of the Federalists. And so it's a very different history that we don't learn about in our civics classes, or our history classes. And the democracy schools, I think, in some ways, are about kind of demythologizing who George Washington was, who the founding fathers were, and what their interests were, and what the Constitution that they drafted was all about. And it really was a property and commerce document to help the white men of property, white men of wealth in the country, build their own wealth and resources to exploit the natural systems across the country, to extract resources as quickly as possible, to build a new nation's economy as quickly as possible without respect to other people or nature itself. Yeah, I had an interesting experience while I was uh, researching for this interview uh, where I went uh, on the CELDF website and I read some of the uh, old the Anti-Federalist papers. 
And so, you know, these guys were the ones that were arguing against the, the Federalists who were making the Constitution. And many of them were saying things like, well, if this Constitution gets passed, then eventually it's going to end up, you know, in a, in a corporatocracy and we're going to lose all of our rights and freedoms and this thing's just not going to work. And I was like, wow, those guys, they were right. I mean, that's exactly what happened. I think that's true. I mean, and, you know, it's, it's sort of hard. Our work is hard. It's hard enough just to organize in a community, but it's even made harder when we have to come in and and talk about, you know, and sort of this whole demythologizing idea. It's so hard to undermine this this idea that we have as Americans about the Founding Fathers, about the flag, about the Constitution, and we have to come in and say it doesn't actually do what we think it did. And the anti-federalists, the folks who are arguing against ratification of the Constitution, were very frightened of this idea that we would return essentially, as some of the Federalists said we should, to uh, in essence an aristocracy and a monarchy, exactly what we had broken away from when we had the American Revolution. They were afraid of a return to that, and I think very much the Constitution was a return to that kind of very centralized, overriding, preemptive structure of law that we thought that we had broken away from during the American Revolution when we said we want to be self-governing. And then the Federalists, in writing the new Constitution, what they did is they kind of returned us to that level of aristocracy, and I think we're seeing that today, 200-plus years later, in this tremendous accumulation of wealth and power among a very limited number of corporations and individuals. All right, we've got about 15 minutes left in the program. I want to uh, take some time to just kind of talk about the practical application uh, then of these concepts. There's, there's just one thing that kind of comes up for me, which is how, how do we end up defining uh, what nature's rights actually are? I mean, there's just a part of me that's concerned that uh, this notion could be somehow co-opted into, uh, you know, I can't develop my land because someone can argue that I'm gonna, uh, I'm gonna destroy an ecosystem. Uh, you know, so what defines what is the destruction of the ecosystem? How do we, how do we determine all of that? Yeah, I, I think some of that. You know, we see it, we talked about this case in Ecuador in which the the river was itself the plaintiff in court. I think what we're going to see is that's going to evolve. I mean, these communities are taking a systems approach, and what I mean by that is, you know, we're often asked, well, if this passes in my community, does that mean I can't mow the lawn? Or does that mean I can't cut down a tree or shoot a squirrel? Somebody asked me, can I not shoot squirrels anymore? And I right. <laughs> asked, why do you want to shoot a squirrel? Yeah. But, <laughs> but, you know, this it's not about that. It's not about whether you can do that or mow your lawn. Or What it's really about is taking a systems approach to protection of the natural environment, which is why it's written specifically about water systems um, and forest systems and ecosystems. Um, because we have an understanding, I think, now through a lot of research and study and time about how the natural world works, that it's systemic and that we need to protect that system such that it can continue operating because it's not just about, you know, a certain kind of tree. It's not just about a certain species. It's about how all that is interconnected and protecting the ability of that interconnection to continue to function in a very healthy way. Um, and that's what we've been interfering with, with our current structure of environmental law. We've been interfering with that by destroying not only systems, but also destroying specific species and specific waterways and so on. And we're trying, through this kind of work that communities are pioneering, what Ecuador is pioneering, is returning to a very systems-based approach. So how nature works is how our environmental laws should look. And I think it's going to take a lot of time, um, much like in the, with these past movements, like what did it look like when women were looking for rights and driving change in the Constitution? What did it look like when we were talking about abolishing slavery? Nobody knew what it meant when slaves were suddenly considered rights-bearing people. And so some of it we can't foresee right now what that's going to look like, but what's important is that we're beginning the first steps on this really necessary and fundamental change. And I guess the more, uh, the more uh, lawsuits, the more times this gets used in court, uh, then the more you have a history of precedent that can start to define uh, how the system will work. I think that's exactly right. And I think it, it means, you know, we see as we've studied past people's movements and how real fundamental change gets made, like to our Constitution, for example, we've seen how critically important it is for both law and culture to change. That is, for them both to sort of move forward and how we see law driving culture and culture driving law. And what I mean is, you know, just because, for example, we passed the 15th Amendment, which allowed African Americans to vote to have the right to suffrage, didn't mean that it was suddenly just, you know, automatically implemented and enforced. It's taken 100-plus years since the ratification of the 15th Amendment for that to happen. And so that meant that law needed to change and our own culture needed to change to enforce it properly. I think this is going to be a very long-term kind of change that we're talking about because it took us 
a very long time to get to this place, and it's going to take us a long time to change it. So even when communities are making these changes, enforcing them, implementing them, changing our own culture to properly um, have them be established, it's going to take a lot of time, which is why when we work with communities, it's not about them getting the next headline or the next blog. Um, you know, that, it's not that immediate kind of gut reaction that they're looking for in their activism. It's really taking a long-term view that this is about making real fundamental change, and that means decadal or generational kind of change. And, and also, I think, it's, I think as a culture, I think, I think we're all ready to start to, to really grow up um, and also take full accountability and responsibility for what happens upstream and downstream and also what happens to societies, even though we get products from China and Vietnam. Do we know what their labor is happening to their labor? Do we know what's happening to the streams and, and waterways that provide the products for us? And, and we don't account for that. And, and bringing it home, um, you know, here, here Will Parrish has done some really excellent articles in the Anderson Valley Advertiser about um, the rights, uh, the water uh, issues that are going on here and the fact that uh, in the Navarro River and others, that the, the wineries and, and the marijuana growers, the, the water hasn't come back up, and they all say, well, either it's legal or I'm too small to affect it. But it's also that, you know, the fish for millions of years came up the Navarro, or at least hundreds of thousands. In the last 20 years, these fish don't come up anymore. And maybe it was the loggers that caused it, but it's on our watch now. It's up to us to fix it. So it has to be a collective. We have to give in order to receive back. And we've been taking for so long that I think we're ready to grow up and I think we're ready to take responsibility and, and the ability to respond to the crisis we're in. But we all have to do it selflessly and not selfishly. Yeah, one of the other things that I bumped into that impressed me about this movement is that it seems to resonate with the indigenous communities, not just in the United States, but around the world. The idea of giving nature rights as a human being, uh, I think, is obvious to, to many indigenous people. Yeah. <laughs> so it's, it's uh, you know, it's us uh, Europeans that have really separated ourselves from that. Mari, can you, can you discuss that in terms of, of Ecuador and maybe uh, other indigenous peoples here in North America? I think that's absolutely right. And in some ways, what it means is rights of nature, this, you know, our very Western, you know, we're putting into Western structures law, right. means codifying the way that their own culture and their own practices have been. And by they, I mean indigenous communities and thinking particularly in Ecuador that we had conversations with indigenous delegates to their constitutional assembly. And they said, you know, they asked the question, well, why do we even have to put this into place? And in the, in the we live this way anyway. And we said, well, you know, unfortunately, Western structures of law are put on place upon you. And so by putting rights of nature into place, what the indigenous delegation said to us is that it was an expansion of their own collective indigenous rights to have rights of nature in their constitution because it empowered them to protect nature in a way that the legal structure wasn't allowing them in the first place. So I think it's very much a codification of these indigenous values that they've been living under, but we haven't reflected in our own Western structures of law. And I think it's time that we start doing so. And we've been talking as well with North American um, indigenous nations and communities, and similar reactions um, to the rights of nature idea have come up, and they've had a very similar kind of a question, like, why do we even need to put this in place? But the reason is, is because they can't use the structure of law now to protect the places where they live in a way that is actually real and fundamental and helping them to protect their own ability to survive in the ecosystems where they live survive. And this helps to empower them as well as the ecosystem. And, and we, and we uh, have documents that we can take the good stuff that was written in by our founding fathers. And, and the first document that they wrote was the Declaration of Independence. And I'm not sure too many people know the, even the first paragraph, and, and if I can just say what it says, what they put in, whether they meant it or not, was when in the course of human events it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another, and, this is the big part, to assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and of nature's God entitle them. And then Thomas Paine wrote, the independence of America, considered merely as a separation from England, would have been a matter but of little importance had it not been accompanied by a revolution in the principles and practices of governments. As America was the only spot in the political world where the principle of universal reformation could begin, so also 
was it the best in the natural world? So they came from the scorched earth of Europe. If you look on the back of a dollar bill on the back side in the pyramid, it's scorched earth behind the pyramid and abundant nature in the front of it. They definitely had nature in their minds when they, they wrote these documents. Well, that, that is a, a fascinating thing. I mean, if you go back to John Locke, he talks about the rights of nature or, or of natural law. And natural law is where human rights come from. We're given individual rights by natural law. And so it's not a huge leap uh, to connect uh, these, this notion of human rights with actually giving nature rights. It put, puts another tool in your tool bag, as it were, to kind of fight these uh, corporate systems that are really degrading the environment. Amari, do you want to comment on that? Well, I think, yeah, and, and I think in some ways, you know, we have a tendency, I think, shorthand to say things like recognizing human rights for nature. It's really, I think, um, you know, as this work is evolving, it's recognizing nature's right to be nature and my, you know, and my human right to be human. It's like recognizing a right of a river to be a river right. and the right of, you know, the antelope to be the antelope and whatever that means for them. Um, and, and I think it really is very much about having an understanding that what we've been doing for so long has been so damaging. And if we're going to have any chance at all of achieving, you know, I use the word sustainability sort of loosely because it's been so, I think, misused. But this idea that we're going to live in a way that the natural environment itself is able to live in a very natural way, that means that we're going to have to really reshift how we do things. And I think that these communities are really beginning to pioneer this change out of almost necessity because their higher levels of law and corporations certainly aren't going to go there and do it for them. And so they're taking the reins themselves and saying, we need to do this, we're going to establish this here, and working to help to bring it out to other communities such that they also say, we need to do this here because we can't wait on our state and federal government to do it for us. And, and as we start um, this work on, on imagining where, where we can go with this and, and what is possible, we turn from despair to hope. And to use, to use nature as a metaphor, there's, there's the, the, the caterpillar. And when the caterpillar uh, starts to die, it actually starts to eat itself for food. But then it creates what, what scientists have called imaginal cells. And in these imaginal cells, they start to imagine themselves to become a butterfly. And I think uh, spiritually, that's where we're at right now, is we're starting to begin to imagine what is possible. And we can take what the, the best nature has to offer and use the biomimicry of nature to, to, to be in harmony with her instead of constantly battling her. Mm -hmm. All right, we've only got a few minutes left. Jamie, do you want to mention uh, what's going on again on the 9th and the 10th? Yeah, um, November 9th, the week uh, from yesterday at the A.V. Grange, we're having um, Shannon Biggs from um, uh, the Rights of Nature book and the Community Rights Organizing Program at Global Exchange, and also Amy Marcus, and, she, and Shannon was just at Occupation Wall Street, and she'll be talking about that, as well as Amy Marcus from Mount Shasta Community Rights, the project co-lead who's, who's initiating the movement up there to put on the ballot the rights of nature, uh, ban corporate personhood, and the right to self-determine in their community what goes on. And then also on November 10th, a week from today at 7.15 at Mendocino Community Center, um, I believe uh, Sarah Grutsky from Uprising Farms will be speaking about what's going on also with the, uh, the raw goat milk ban or cease and desist orders from the USDA and FDA and how that's affected her. All right, very good. And Mari, um, would you like to just make some closing remarks and maybe, maybe describe for us um, kind of what we can do on a community level to get something rolling here if, if we're interested? Uh, you know, how, how do you actually implement these things? Absolutely. You know, we work with community by community, and we have organizers who work in different places around the country at the request of communities when they're facing some sort of threat, or even if they're just interested in seeing about what it would mean for them to protect nature in a new way or address corporate rights in a new way. Um, and people can get in touch with us. Our website has a lot of contact information, a lot of background information. The website address is celdf.org. We can also learn about democracy school there and just get in touch with us because we work with people all over the country that are facing all sorts of different kinds of things happening, like drilling or mining or fracking, whatever it might be, and helping communities to kind of examine, well, how is it that it doesn't seem we can protect the place that we live when we know that what the corporation wants to do is knowingly harmful or we know that it's going to impact our water, whatever it might be. And so we, we are very open and welcome um, to people getting in touch with us um, with no background at all, just letting us know that they have questions and we can begin the conversation. 
Well, sounds great, Mari. Yeah, well, I think we're out of time here, but thank you so much for being on the program this morning and enlightening us about these uh, different ideas, different ways to kind of take back the power here in our local communities. Thank you, Doug. You bet. Have a great day. Thank you. All right, and there you go. That was Mari, Ma uh, Mari Margill of the Community Environmental Legal Defense Fund. Jamie, thank you very much for being on the program today. Doug, thank you for hosting the show. Uh, very interesting topic here about uh, the uh, rights of nature and uh, maybe another tool in our tool bag for uh, fighting this corporate personhood that we're all dealing with every day. So uh, thanks again for listening. The time is 10 o'clock. You've been listening to the Thursday Morning Report right here on KZYX 90.7 FM Philo, KZYZ 91.5 FM Willits, and Ukiah, that's 88.1 FM Fort Bragg. This is Mendocino County Public Broadcasting listener-supported community radio streaming on the web at kzyx.org. Stay tuned in just a few moments for Portraits in Jazz. That's coming up right after Earth and Sky. Thanks again, everyone. I'll be back in two weeks' time.